Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. How can people seemingly with such together lives just cash it all in so instantaneously? It doesn't happen instantly. It happens through a long series of smaller compromises. Jesus taught that way, didn't he? He said, oh, you never think you'd commit adultery. I realize you never think you'd cross that line. Then you'd better police your mind. When you lust after a woman in your heart, you're setting yourself up. heard the story of the boiling frog? It's an apt metaphor that describes the concept of compromise. If a frog is placed into hot water, it'll jump out. But if you place the frog in tepid water and slowly heat it, the frog will not perceive the danger. Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is reminding us about the slippery slope of compromise. He's titled today's message, How to Avoid Doing What You Never Dreamed You'd Do. Well, let's get started. not uncommon to hear people talk about things they'd never do. Never forget my wife's birthday. You ever say that? When I said, I remember saying this, I'd never buy a minivan. <laughs> <clears throat> or I'd never gain that much weight. Uh, I said that to uh, my all-time favorite, though. I used to say this before I had kids. I said, I'd never let my kids act that way in a restaurant. <laughs> Don't follow me to lunch today and see that sometimes we do things we never dreamed we'd do. In the real world, it's that way, isn't it? We set out in our lives to do things a certain way. We say, I'd never do that, I'd never do that. But in the real world, it happens like that. We often do things we never dreamed we'd do. If you're a devoted follower of Christ, I'm quite sure there are things right now in your life, today, that you would never dream of doing. You would think, I'll, I'll never do that. There's certain sins you think, I, I'd never commit that sin. I'd never go down that path. I'd never let it get that out of control in my life. For the smug and confident among us, Scripture's got a real clear message. 1 Corinthians 10 says, To the one who thinks he stands firm, better be careful before you fall. No one is exempt from a big spiritual catastrophe. The sins you think you could never commit, they're possible, given a certain set of circumstances. No one is exempt. I'd like us this morning to learn from a man who in 1 Samuel chapter 28 crossed a line that I can guarantee you he never expected that he would cross, cashing in everything that he had stood for, contradicting in every way the virtues that he claimed to follow and the tenets of principles of Scripture that he had hoped to uphold by his life. If you have your Bibles, look at this passage with me and begin in verse number one to get a little bit of the context here. In the context, in the first few verses of this chapter, we find a dilemma, a quandary for both of the stars of 1 Samuel that we've been tracking so far, for Saul and for David. If you remember the context, David has now crossed over to the Philistine territory and has pretended to be loyal to the king of the Philistines, Achish. And he says, I'm with you, 100%. 
Well, the dreaded day came, look at it, verse number one, when the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. That created a problem for David. David claimed to be loyal to the Philistines. In reality, he was just lying, being deceptive. And the force with which the Philistines were going to come against the Israelites would put Saul in a quandary because he couldn't find any direction from God and the armies attacking him were bigger than any he'd ever seen before. What happens? Well, we see the beginnings of what David does in verse number one. Achish says, well, you understand, of course, David, that you and your men will accompany me in the army. Gulp. Think about it. David, the anointed and up-and-coming king of Israel, who's chosen by Samuel and by God to shepherd and love the people of Israel, is now going to be called upon by the foreign Philistine king to go and fight against the people he's called by God to defend. That's a quandary. That's a problem. What does David do? Well, we see his reply in verse 2. We don't see the gulp there, but you can guarantee it's there. And David says, well... Then you'll see for yourself what your servant can do. Now, I have no idea what his intentions are, but we'll find out how his story played out in chapter 29. Achish says very well, you're going to be loyal to me and even fight against your own people side by side, shoulder to shoulder with my soldiers. Then I'll make you my bodyguard for life. You're in. I will trust you implicitly if you show me that kind of law. If I see you killing Israelites, oh man, you'll be my bodyguard. You'll be the top-ranking official in my court. Spotlight shifts, verse 3, to Saul. Saul, as you'll remember, is kind of without any direction. The prophet is gone. It says in verse 3, Samuel had died. We know that. We've tracked that in the book already. Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled all the mediums and all the spiritists from the land. That'll be important in a moment. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem while Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul goes and looks out at those soldiers that he's up against, look at it, verse 5, he sees the Philistine army. He is afraid. Terror fills his heart. He inquired of Yahweh, but Yahweh did not answer him. Didn't answer him by dreams, didn't answer him by the Urim, these divining tools of the high priest, didn't answer him by the prophets. He got silence, nothing. He's filled with terror. What do I do now, God? Look at this army, it's huge. Help! Nothing. Inquiring of God in every way he knew how. All the appropriate ways, no answer. This is a sad six verses, isn't it? David, set with his back against the wall, painting himself in a corner, now has to do something. Drastic times, he's going to have to do something drastic. Saul, same thing, long series of compromises in his life had led him to the place where now he's facing an enemy and he's not hearing a word from God. Now, how do people get in messes like that? We're about to see Saul, as the spotlight continues on him through the rest of this chapter, cross a line he never dreamed he'd cross, do a sin he never imagined that he would do. How did he get to the front door of such heinous, terrible, detestable behavior? Well, 
We don't see it in this passage, but we know it. If you've been in the study with us, it was a long series of compromises. For David, it was deception. He got comfortable with deceiving. For Saul, it was greediness and rebellion and waywardness and doing things his way and his time his way. And here he is now faced with a temptation to do something incredibly sinful, all because of a long series of compromises. How is it that people with a claim to be godly cross big lines of sin? It doesn't happen overnight. It happens, as we know, in watching Saul through a long series of small compromises. You and I, if we're going to avoid the big sins, need to recognize it's the little sins that gets us to the front door of the big sins. You and I, number one on your outline, if you're taking notes, it's worth getting down. You and I need to learn to sweat the small stuff. Do you know what I mean by that? We need to start getting serious about the little things. What was it in Saul's life that led him to just about, in verse 6, cross a line that I'm sure he never imagined he'd cross? How is it that people that I work with or have sat next to on boards and other churches one week are helping me steer a ministry and the next week they're cashing in their position on the board and they're turning in their resignation at work and they're walking out on their wife and their children? How can that happen? How can people seemingly with such together lives just cash it all in so instantaneously? It doesn't happen instantly. It happens through a long series of smaller compromises. Jesus taught that way, didn't he? He said, oh, you never think you'd commit adultery. I realize that you never think you'd cross that line. Then you'd better police your mind. When you lust after a woman in your heart, you're setting yourself up. Oh, I know you never think you'd be a criminal. You never see yourself as someone who would be in jail as some swindler or criminal. But if really you don't want to see yourself that way and you never think you could commit that sin, you'd better be honest in everything you say. Oh, you'd never commit murder. You'd never be, be accused of killing someone. Well, well, if you think that you'd never do that, in essence, you need to start dealing with the little things in your life like bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. You see, because it's the little sins in our lives that go out of control. Jesus was trying to focus on before you feel so self-righteous that you're not a murderer or an adulterer or a criminal, you better look at the little things because it's those little things that we stand on to reach the big sins. And Saul was about to cash in everything he believed in, everything he had, he had stood for, everything he had legislated. He is about to totally contradict that and it didn't happen instantly. It wasn't a temptation he would have been open to 10 years prior. It was something that Satan and his flesh was willing to indulge in because he had built a long series of compromises in his life. You and I need to learn to sweat the small stuff. That won't make you a legalist. I know some people will claim that. You start worrying about the little sins in your life, quote unquote little sins, if you start really worrying about those, concerning yourself with those, putting forth effort to prevent those in your life, some people say, oh, you become a legalist. It won't make you a legalist. It may perhaps guarantee that you'll walk in holiness. And that's wisdom. It's not legalism. Someone gave me recently a book of prayers by the Puritans. If you know anything about church history, the Puritans were a unique band of people. Just their name reflects something of what they were known for, right? The Puritans. They didn't have the scandals in their churches that we have in ours today. Their churches, by and large, weren't characterized by the kinds of heinous, re reprehensible sins that our churches seem to be characterized by at the end of the 20th century in Western America. They were different. And I know they're easily branded as wild-eyed, crazy, right-wing lunatics by the media and everybody else I hear talk about scornfully, the Puritans. 
But in reading through some of the prayers of the Puritans, I learned they accomplished a level of purity in their churches and in their lives because they sweated the small stuff. You know what I mean? It was the little sins they were concerned about. They policed their minds and their thoughts. They prayed prayers, not like our prayers. Oh, God, keep me from this and keep me from that. I don't want to be a murderer. I don't want to be a daughter. And forgive me for this big sin and that big. And let's get on to my prayer list now. They were concerned about the Psalm 139 attitude. Search my heart. Try me. Know me. See if there be, little three-letter word, any sinful way in me. Is there anything, God? Maybe we can learn something from the Puritans who sweated the small stuff, who reflected the hard attitude of the psalmist, search my heart, try me, know me, see if there be any sinful way in me. You and I learn to sweat the small stuff. Perhaps we won't find ourselves on the threshold of committing huge sins like Saul was about to commit. Drop your eyes down to verse number 7 and watch him cross the threshold of a sin he never thought he would do. The text says in verse 7, you can imagine... Then Saul, the king of God's chosen, holy, set-apart, sanctified people, he says to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. Do you see what a huge contradiction this is? Oh, weren't you the guy that legislated against this? Weren't you the man who saw in God's law how reprehensible and how terribly detestable this kind of thing was in God's eyes, that you banned everyone who participated in it? That you carried out, in reality, the death penalty against people who were proven to be mediums and spiritists? You want us to do what now, King Saul? Find you one? Why? You want to kill her? No, I want to inquire of her because I'm desperate. God isn't answering me. I didn't sweat the small stuff, so I'm ready to commit a huge act of hypocrisy, and I'm about to do something I'm sure when I legislated against it, I never thought I'd do. Well, they said, middle of verse 7, there's one in Endor. So Saul, note it with me, verse number 8, disguised himself, put on other clothes, and under the cover of darkness at night, he and two men went to the woman, and he walked through the door of someone who had a sign in the window, fortune teller, medium, spiritist, and he sat down, the chosen leader of God's people, called to be holy and blameless, and he said, would you please consult a spirit for me? Bring up for me the one I name. The woman... I'm sure, living in Endor, not far from Gilboa, thought, well, I've read in the newspapers, the armies are here, all these soldiers are on the edge of town, I recognize that probably King Saul is over there. She's thinking, here come these soldiers, she doesn't know it's Saul, obviously he's disguised. She thinks it's probably a ploy. He's probably clearing out all the evil and sin and the wicked around the camp. So it's a trick. The woman says, verse 9, surely you know what Saul has done. He's cut off all the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Are you trying to trick me? What is this all about? I can't do that. It's outlawed. The king himself has decreed it. She didn't know she had the king sitting across the table. Look at the contradiction in verse 10. Saul 
swore to her by the Lord. This is not Adonai. This is not Elohim. These are not generic names for God. He uses Yahweh, God's proper and holy name. Do you see the blatant contradiction here? By God's holy name, as surely as Yahweh lives, you will not be punished for this. What an incredible statement. God, I swear to you, in God's name, in God's holy and proper name, you won't get in trouble for this, to do this reprehensible, sinful thing that God detests and abhors. You, no, 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 no. It'll be okay. Well, with that kind of promise, she says, who do you want to talk to? And he says, verse 11, bring up Samuel. This is blatant hypocrisy. And you and I need to recognize what this looks like. It's easy to see in someone else. Do you see it in you? When you walk into temptations? Let me put it this way, if I can. Bring a mirror when you're tempted next time. Take a good look at yourself in context of that sin. If you find yourself like Saul under the cover of night with disguises and, and hidden agendas and, and secretive drives to that place, secret participations in those things. And perhaps you are being, as Saul was, a huge hypocrite, allowing, living with, content with being a contradiction. When in reality, if you and I are going to avoid the big sins, you and I need to at every level loathe hypocrisy. We need to hate it second thing on your outline. If you and I are going to not step across the thresholds of those sins that we stand so firmly against in the time of trial or crisis, we need to make sure that in our lives we have developed a hatred for hypocrisy. We hate it when we see it in other people and we hate it and detest it when we see it in ourselves. And you need to start seeing yourself in the context of sin. Here I am, someone who claims to be a follower of God, participating in this. I can't believe it. You need to start seeing yourself in the context of your compromise. I'm a Sunday school teacher. I've taught my children not to do these things. And yeah, here I am, crossing that line. If you and I would learn to hate hypocrisy, if we'd see the distance between what we say we stand for and what we're about to do, perhaps we could say, I I'm not going there. I can't picture myself in that setting. I can't see myself, someone standing for truth, violating and cashing in everything to do that. And yet here was Saul, the one who slammed his scepter down on the table and said, no more mediums, no more witches in this land. Stepping into a place with dark lights and curtains and an old lady who says, you give me some money, I'll call up a spirit for you. And he says, fine. I don't know what your temptation is. I hope it's not spiritism, but I don't want to pass that by so quickly because perhaps you're tempted in that area. No, oh, no, 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 church isn't involved in that. You might be surprised. The Bible's clear that God has set up some parameters and boundaries. There are boundaries and rules and laws that God has established in every corner of his universe. You step off the second floor balcony of this church, you're going to fall to the center of the earth. That's a law he's set up. It's called gravity. You can't defy that. That's just how it works. Buoyancy is a law. You go walk off the end of the pier, you're not going to, you know, keep walking. You're, you're, you're going to sink. You're going to have to learn to swim because water is not going to support your weight. These are rules that God has set up. Another rule God has set up is that once people die, there is a barrier between life and death that we shouldn't toy with and tamper with. 
But perhaps some level of hypocrisy in your life is displayed in that you claim to be a follower of Christ and stand on the Word of God, and the Bible is full of prohibitions in this area, but you toy with it a little bit. Yeah, you read your horoscope a few times. So, you know, it's just fun. It's all over our culture. We see it in our evangelical funerals, don't we? pastor gets up, talks about how, oh, your loved one will be with us and guide us and still we'll have, you know, you'll never leave us. We'll always have some connection. No, you won't. Well, you have a memory perhaps, but there's no crossing this barrier. God has set up a parameter. Death separates. Let's not tolerate that. Well, it would never get rampant in the Christian community most famous televangelist in our country stood up and said that he has not dreams, actual visions of dead people standing in his bedroom having conversations with him. That's called necromancy. That's called spiritism. That's called consulting the dead. And no one seemed to, to throw up any stink about it. They yawned their way through it. Oh, that's interesting. That's great. Next new thing in the Christian church. As a matter of fact, one of the popular televangelists said, if you go to the graves of departed spiritual leaders, the leaders of the charismatic movement that have died and gone on before us, if you go to their graves, you will have some special anointing come from their grave, they call it, that may heal your arthritis or your backaches or your sicknesses. And he encourages this and talks about how in his life he's edified by being there in the, in, amongst the dead, the Christian dead. And the church yawns their way through it. We add it to our funeral services. If we're desperate after someone dies in our family, who knows, we might pull in to El Camino Real and talk to the spiritists there on PCH and Dana Point. They're all over the place. I pass them every day. Oh, Christians wouldn't be lured into that. Perhaps you remember Bishop Pike, James A. Pike? You remember that, Episcopal priest, Bishop of California? His son committed suicide. He was so enthralled with that and the grief of his loss that he started consulting mediums and spiritists to contact his dead son. He ended up writing a book about it. I got it in my library called The Other Side, where he chronicles his accounts of speaking with his dead son through the avenue of mediums. The church needs to recognize that is a level of compromise that cannot be overstated. Deuteronomy 18, reject the mediums and spiritists and those who consult the dead. They are detestable to me, Deuteronomy 18 says. A level of compromise that cannot be overstated. An important caution from Pastor Mike Fabares. You're listening to Focal Point in a message titled, How to Avoid Doing What You Never Dreamed You'd Do. Now you can download the study notes and listen to this message on demand when you visit focalpointradio.org. Well, whether you're a regular listener or today's your first time joining us, I'm sure you've noticed that Pastor Mike is a straight shooter. He says it like it is, right from Scripture, because as nice as it is to hear positive messages, they won't equip you to deal with the temptation to compromise. The only thing that will carry us through is the rock-solid truth of the gospel. And that's why we're wholly committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word. Now, if you've been strengthened through this program, will you partner with us today so we can continue reaching into hearts and homes with these daily messages? Give online at focalpointradio.org. 
And when you give a gift of any amount today, we'll send you a copy of Nate Pickowitz's book called How to Eat Your Bible as our way of saying thanks. If you don't find you get a lot out of your personal Bible study time, or you just don't know where to start, then this book will be a great encouragement for you. And that's why Pastor Mike and the Focal Point team here have selected this practical and unique book as this month's resource. Go online to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Or maybe you're ready to take your support to the next level by becoming a Focal Point Partner. Monthly support provides a reliable source of income so we can continue bringing you and so many others this daily program. Join the team at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy. So glad you joined us. And be sure to come back tomorrow for our weekly feature called Ask Pastor Mike. This time we're talking about heavenly rewards. Hear the helpful discussion when you join us Friday for Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, it's an honor to be with you every day, helping you explore the depths of Scripture. But I want to be clear, no amount of Bible knowledge is ever going to save you. Be sure where you stand with God. Get in touch with us. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Visit us today at focalpointradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.